Last week, a couple of letters from Texas Governor Greg Abbott and his attorney general, Ken Paxton, started pinging around the Internet. Major outrage in Texas today after the state attorney general, Ken Paxton, likened kids getting gender-affirming medical care to child abuse. Paxton says... These letters were aimed at Child Protective Services, and they encouraged Texans to do something no other state does, view medical treatment for trans kids as abusive. ACLU Texas says it's been receiving an uptick in calls from concerned parents of trans youth wanting to know about their legal rights. This comes Reporter Caitlin Burns, she wasn't surprised by these letters, but she was outraged by them. You know, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't be upset by that, but I just think about to my own time as a closeted kid who had, you know, I would classify it as gender feelings but no language to go along with that. All I was was just a scared little kid. And if, you know, my state governor, who at the time was Mario Cuomo in New York, had come out and done this, I'm not sure how how the little version of me would have handled that. So there's a very visceral reaction to this. As a reporter, Caitlin knew the facts here. These letters are not binding. In fact, after they got released... District attorneys representing five of Texas's biggest counties all said they had no plans to enforce this directive. First of all, in order for any child to be removed from a Texas home, there has to be court order. And no court in the United States has actually determined that affirming a child's gender with health care equates to child abuse. So they would need to have that precedent before they could actually start removing kids from homes, but we are seeing institutional pushback against this order uh, because I think a lot of people see this as, you know, what it really is. It's posturing for a primary campaign that Abbott is facing against a much more conservative candidate. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing at play here. Governor Greg Abbott and Attorney General Paxton, they are up for re-election. In fact, today, March 1st, is primary day. So if the directive may not be legally binding, I'm wondering if you can lay out why it's alarming to you anyway. This is an escalation that we haven't seen before. I think that it's particularly cruel. It's the first time that we've seen the internationally recognized treatment for gender dysphoria be declared child abuse, right? You're talking about ripping children and adolescents out of their family homes, out of their parents' arms. Today on the show, why Texas has become ground zero in the political fight over trans kids. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
When I think about anti-trans legislation, I think about this evolution I've watched happen. First, there was the fight over bathrooms. Then the fight over trans people in sports. This latest fight in Texas, it's something different. It's about trans kids and how they should be treated not just in public, but also in private, at home, with their families. And while no one thinks the directive to treat gender-affirming care as child abuse is legally binding now, Caitlin Byrne says it could open the door to trans children being taken from their families, eventually. She thinks of it as a reminder to people who talk about trans issues in the abstract. I think for a lot of people, uh, trans issues are mostly an intellectual exercise. We spend a lot of time arguing, are trans women women, or the sports thing, or the bathroom thing, but we very rarely step back and actually see trans people as actual human beings with lives who, you know, are really just trying to get from point A to point B like everybody else. When I started reading about this new directive in Texas about trans kids, there was something that caught my attention right away, which is that it seems like Child Protective Services in Texas has actually been investigating the parents of trans kids for years. Like, it, it's been something that families of trans kids have even had to prepare for. So I'm wondering if you can explain to me a little bit from your reporting what it's like if you've got a trans kid in Texas, even before this new rule. Yeah, I would expand this actually past Texas. I think this applies to anybody in the U.S. who has a trans kid. I mean, I've talked to parents in New York City who have had Child Protective Services called on them by like a neighbor or a relative over affirming their child's gender. So it's not, I want to be clear, this is not just a Texas issue. But one of the really heartbreaking things that I hear all the time in my reporting, anytime I report on trans families or families with trans kids in them is that the parents have to prepare what they call a go folder. What's that? That's basically a folder that documents this child's entire life as a trans kid, right? So it's doctor's appointments, it's statements from psychologists, it's statements from doctors all saying, yes, this child is actually trans. No, this is not abuse. And they have it on hand expecting to have some nosy stranger or acquaintance who does not approve of trans identities calling the government on them and their families. I think it's worth getting into the nitty gritty of the language in this directive mm -hmm. because it, it refers specifically to gender transitioning. So what does the governor mean when he's talking about gender transitioning and kids? You could interpret that in a variety of ways. I think most people think that, that the line is drawn at any sort of medication or medical intervention. I think the statute, the way it's written, could possibly be interpreted to mean any gender nonconforming behavior or, or traits. Right, like if you cut your daughter's hair very short, for instance, is that a gender transitioning action? Yeah, I, I don't think we know for sure, right? And that's the scary part. I think that's part of the reason why trans people like myself and others who, who, who care for trans people were so upset. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is specifically called out in what Governor Abbott put out there 
are puberty blockers. The idea that children who identify as trans, when they reach puberty, they are often prescribed puberty blockers, which keep them in a state of stasis while they figure out what's happening inside them. And my understanding is that now in Texas, puberty blockers are considered part of a gender transition. Is that how doctors think about them? Well, puberty blockers are used for a variety of things, not just trans-related stuff. I mean, if a child has precocious puberty, they are prescribed puberty blockers. Are we to consider that now to be child abuse under Texas law? This goes unanswered. I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about puberty blockers and what they do. It's really just a delay tactic. And a lot of people don't realize that, that puberty blockers are started after puberty starts. It's not before puberty starts. So there's no like eight-year-olds on puberty blockers. It's the, the medical term for the stage that it's introduced at is Tanner stage two, which is when you first start see the, seeing large hormonal changes and bodily changes. And the reason you wait that long is you want to see if the child is actually comfortable with the changes that are starting to happen to their body. And if they're not, you don't want to like force the puberty on them where they feel like they're helpless because that leads the adolescent into a very dark and potentially dangerous place. So you introduce the puberty blockers so that they can mature a little bit more and be more settled in their dysphoria. You make sure that they completely understand what they're doing before you introduce anything that's permanent. Um, But there has been a lot of scaremongering over this treatment uh, over the years that has been really frustrating. What do you think the misunderstandings are about this kind of treatment? (laughs) I'm not sure you're going to like my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Now I really want to hear it. This is a new thing for a lot of people. It is not a new treatment for trans people. Uh, They first started doing this treatment in the 90s. And I think it's new to a lot of people. It's unfamiliar. It sounds scary. And there's a lot of, you know, in our current media environment where people just don't trust, they don't know who to trust for sources. I think there's a lot of uh, intentionally bad actors, even in mainstream media, who intentionally muddy the waters on this issue in a way that's not necessary. What do they say? They'll call into question, you know, the safety of of these treatments. They'll say, oh, this is given to cancer patients, but obviously it's given in a much different dosage and, and, and way. They'll say, oh, this leads to permanent sterility, which there's no study showing that. They'll point to, you know, a very small handful of examples of kids who felt like they were trans for a month and then decided they were not. So all of a sudden they're, you know, declared, oh, these are detransitioners, right, who potentially could have ruined their bodies if they had kept going with this. And I look at all of this stuff and I say, well, what's wrong with having a trans body? Why is this so stigmatized? Maybe we should um, get to a point where we can accept trans bodies as normal rather than saying, oh, this is the worst thing that a child can do. I just think a lot of it is just weighed down by prejudice, uh, to be quite honest with you, that people refuse to um, try to work through or think through. Is there any debate 
among medical professionals about whether delaying gender-affirming care would be good for kids? It is the medical consensus through every major medical association, board, what have you, that gender-affirming care for minors through puberty blockers is the best route to treat gender dysphoria. What you see is a lot of people in the the psychological industry who I think somewhat selfishly want the adolescents to spend more time in therapy before they start going there, which makes sense. If you're a therapy-based business, you want more therapy. So I think there's self-interest that goes unexamined there. But the consensus among medical professionals is we've only found one way to really, quote-unquote, solve gender dysphoria, and that's through transitioning. If there were other ways that have been proven to work and produce happy adults, you know, gender dysphoria-free adults, I would happily be endorsing other ways besides this. But so far, we haven't discovered that. Hmm. Why did you think I would be upset by your answer before? (laughs) Because I accuse unnamed colleagues of just being transphobes. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't think it's wrong to question medicalization of anything, but I hear what you're saying. To borrow from the anti-vax side of uh, the medical equation, I think there are several Andrew Wakefields um, in even liberal publications. Hmm. People who are just asking questions. You said it. I didn't. Back in a minute with more from my guest, Caitlin Burns. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? 
Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You can't ignore the political context of what happened in Texas last week when the state's attorney general and governor lined up against gender-affirming care for minors. Both the governor and the attorney general are Republicans. Both face primary challenges from candidates to their right. Early voting started on Valentine's Day, and today is primary day in Texas. Governor Abbott is favored to prevail in his race, but the Republican state attorney general, Ken Paxton, He's on a shakier path. And there are some very vocal conservative voters who've been asking Texas to crack down on the medicalization of trans kids, especially the use of puberty blockers. It's a hot button issue for the right. It's been going on for several years that Texas conservatives have been particularly obsessed with this. Part of it is, is they want to burnish their conservative bona fides here ahead of these primary races. That's a pretty cynical take. It sounds like you're saying that basically trans kids are a political football in Texas. I think they're a political football everywhere. Hmm. I want to talk about how Texas got to this point. One reporter called Texas the ground zero of anti-trans legislation. So I'm wondering if you can lay it out for me. How did we get to this point? Yeah. So if you go back to 2015, we were fresh off the Obergefell marriage equality ruling from the Supreme Court. And religious conservatives, you know, frankly, lost huge on that issue. But they have all these structures set up that were going into anti-LGBT lobbying and advocacy. And so they needed a new subject. And unfortunately, the subject that they settled on was trans issues. Caitlin says, The first example of this came in Houston. It was 2015. The city had just passed a sweeping anti-discrimination ordinance. It was written to outlaw bias against people based on a variety of things, including their race, age, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Opponents of the new anti-discrimination law put it to a voter referendum, and they pursued an aggressive campaign against it calling it a bathroom ordinance, and saying it would allow dangerous men into women's bathrooms. A television ad came out against the ordinance with images of a man entering a woman's restroom and waiting there until a young girl bounded in and he entered her stall. Any man at any time could enter a woman's bathroom simply by claiming to be a woman that day. No one is exempt. Even registered sex offenders could follow women or young girls into the bathroom. When this referendum went to a vote, there were signs outside of Houston's polling places saying no men in women's bathrooms. The ordinance got repealed by a vote of 61 percent to 39 percent. 
Houston's mayor said it was brought down by a calculated campaign of lies designed to demonize a little understood minority. The Republican lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, he saw it differently. This shows that the liberal leftist ideas of the Democrats, led by this mayor and led by Hillary Clinton, are going to re- be rejected, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats who came out against this. It's just common sense. This effort in Houston to defeat an anti-discrimination law, this is what spurred a wave of so-called bathroom bills all across the country. Yeah, it came from Texas. Texas tried for years to pass a bathroom bill unsuccessfully. They tried to pass a school bathroom bill where they just, it was a bathroom bill, but only for school children. They have have been trying for years to get something on the books against trans kids or trans people. It's the issue that has so many talking, public bathrooms and the rights of the transgendered community. First, there was the debate in Houston. Now it's in Fort Worth schools. It even has the state of North Carolina facing off against the federal government. A fight Governor Greg Abbott told Thursday's general session he will join. I am working with the governor of North Carolina, and we are going to fight back. As I was reading about some of the history here, one parent had this heartbreaking quote. She's a parent of a trans kid. She talked about how she came to the Capitol to rally against these bathroom bills, and she looked at what was happening now with the the directive about child protective services and trans kids. And she said it felt like the organizers' victory over previous anti-trans legislation had led to this fight. She was, like, blaming herself. She was saying parents were so effective in shutting down the bathroom bill that now they're coming after parents. Yeah, I, I think the analysis at the heart of that is absolutely correct. I mean, when would you say the idea of framing gender-affirming care for trans kids as child abuse began? Yeah, so that I would pinpoint 2019. There's a custody case in Texas between a mom and her ex-husband, the father of seven-year-old trans girl, Luna Younger. Luna did everything right, you know, came out to parents. The mom was supportive. The mom is a pediatrician. She comes from the medical field. She's a pediatrician who, whenever she was pictured, she was wearing a cross, too. Oh, and that's been actually really common in Texas, where religious parents are having to deal with how to react to having a trans child. But in this particular case, like, Luna was diagnosed by several different psych professionals as having gender dysphoria. She was seven years old at the time. So for seven-year-olds, there's no medical treatment at all for a great number of years. It's just different hairstyle, a different way to dress, different pronouns, and maybe a different name. But the ex-husband refused to accept their child's trans identity. And the ex-husband, he kept shaving Luna's head. Like when I read read about this, it was that was really sad that that was his reaction. Yeah. The details and the specifics were really hard to stomach as a reporter when I was writing about this. But the father, like, does not come off as a nice man when you read the court documents. He refused to accept his child's gender identity and basically launched a public relations campaign. He went viral on conservative media. My kid had just turned three years old. He's three months past his third birthday. He comes to my house and he's wearing a rag on his head. 
So I whipped out my iPhone and took the first iPhone video I'd ever taken. I didn't even know how to do it. And then I asked him, um, why are you wearing that rag on your head? And he explains it. If you go out onto YouTube, you can just- You're a boy, right? No, I'm a girl. Who told you you were a girl? Mommy. <clears throat> when did she tell you you were a girl? Cause I love girls. Oh, I see. So mommy told you you were a girl? Uh-huh. So mommy put- He raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to fight back against this. He made all these outlandish claims about his ex-wife, you know, saying she wants to chemically castrate my seven-year-old child, which is not true at all. You know, Luna was at least five years away from treatment. But of course, there's lying in the conservative side of the press about this case where they're buying his claims at, at face value and then publishing them. And what it did was it really galvanized Texas conservatives against this type of care for kids. Jeff Younger is now running for a seat in the Texas State House. His wife has been given full custody of Luna. But Luna's dad has to give permission before she undergoes any medical transition. It's just really heartbreaking. At, at sort of the height of the media coverage of this, Jeff Younger dressed Luna up in, you know, boys' clothes, fresh haircut. Um, and took a picture, and the boy was smiling, and he put it on social media and said, look, you know, uh, I forget the child's, you know, uh, male name, but look, so-and-so is happy. This proves that I was right. And I was talking to this family friend for my story, and basically the child got to school, and the teacher pulled the kid aside and was like, are you comfortable because like the teacher knows who the child is and has seen how she's come to school before she's like are you like how are you feeling about this and she goes I'm not not okay and apparently there was a change of clothes that was Luna's in case of emergency and it was a dress and Luna decided to wear a dress the rest of that day and meanwhile this picture was all over Fox and all over conservative media saying this picture proves the father was correct all along because look at the smile and I think it really revealed the sort of depths of manipulation on a number of different layers that that went into this case yeah I hear that story and I can't help but think about the teacher and this new directive from the state yeah whether yeah if this directive goes through the teacher couldn't do that the teacher would be required to report you know, the mom for child abuse, if the child says, no, I'm not comfortable wearing these boys' clothes, like, this is how cruel we're talking about when it comes to this directive. What is the danger now? Like, in the next few months since this directive came out, what are you going to be looking for to see how it actually impacts the lives of trans kids in Texas? I want to see if if kids are actually being investigated or pulled from homes. I want to see if families are trying to flee the state. There's all kinds of untold fallout that could happen from this. I'm not sure it would be the next couple of months because we're yet to see how CPS is going to adopt this policy or not. There will certainly be a court fight over it that could last half a decade over the long run, the, the risk is that either children will be taken away from loving parental homes or it'll make them even more suicidal than they already are. 
Is there any way in which supporters of Governor Abbott and the Attorney General Paxton could say they're not anti-trans? Like they they would say we're not we're anti-trans for minors. We don't want children making this decision. Yeah. I mean, they're already saying that. Hmm. What's your response? My response is, if that's true, why did you try to ban trans adults from the bathroom, you know, four years ago? It sounds like you're saying there is no charitable way to look at the arguments that are being made by Republicans in Texas. I think a lot of them genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. But in order to see it that way, you have to see trans people as something subhuman or undesirable or something to be deleted or prevented. You know, you have to see trans people as maybe a disease or some sort of vermin. And you do see that kind of verbiage leak out. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the the congresswoman from Georgia, went on the radio and suggested that conservatives should beat the hell out of all trans people. First off, if I was a parent and my fifth grade daughter had had to sleep and shower in some kind of cabin at some summer camp that I paid money to send my child to, and there was a man calling himself a woman sleeping in her cabin, showering with her, that guy would, he'd be in jail. He would be in jail. Well, first off, my husband would have beat him into the ground and then he'd be in jail. But this is exactly how we need to stand up against this stuff. And then the men. So am I being uncharitable? Yes. But am I being unrealistic in describing their actual intent and the impact that it would have on trans people? I don't think I am. Yeah. One historian I was reading made this point that I thought was apt. They said, What bothered them in particular about what was happening in Texas is that framing a parent accepting who their child is as child abuse was this kind of like rhetorical inversion that can cloud your sense of who's at risk when a child comes out as trans. I thought it was interesting because It was true of a number of arguments I'm seeing being made politically now with the inversion of victimhood. Yeah. When you look at like anti-trans forums where where parents of children who have come out as trans, but they don't support the kid, you see, why is my child attacking me like this? Hmm. And it's like, hello, what planet are you on? They're your child. They're not attacking you. One of the more frustrating claims that I've run into when covering this issue is there are all kinds of people who have legitimate power over trans lives who are claiming that children coming out as trans is some sort of social contagion. They're, in essence, they're claiming that these kids are getting recruited into being trans, which I think is really far-fetched and akin to QAnon, to be quite honest with you. We saw for years and years, you know, gay men were always accused of trying to recruit children into homosexuality. I think this is just a continuation of that moral panic. But what that kind of framing does is it allows bigoted parents to say, these trans people are attacking me through my child, when in actuality, their child is just trying to be who they are. 
Um, and it's really, really frustrating because you see people who should know better who are going, hmm, maybe this is a social contagion or whatever it is. But being trans is not a sickness. Caitlin Burns, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Caitlin Burns is a columnist over at MSNBC. She's also the co-host of the podcast Cancel Me Daddy. She was the first ever openly trans Capitol Hill reporter. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We are led by Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. We will be back in this feed bright and early tomorrow morning. See you then. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.